Children will not be able to thrive in the inevitable imperfections of the world that will surround them if they grow up in this experience of my parents never made a mistake. My parents never felt anything. Curious Neuron Podcast, where we take a compassionate approach to science-based parenting. Join us as we break down the science of child development and parenting into digestible and applicable advice. Welcome. and welcome back to the Curious Neuron Podcast. My name is Cindy Huffington and I am your host. I am a mom of three kids and I have a doctorate degree in neuroscience and I like to share the science with you. Um, Today was a really interesting one because Brianna has lots of amazing advice online and I've spoken to her a few times now. She is the first returning guest to the Curious Neuron Podcast and there's a reason why she just offers so much value in the content that she creates and she has amazing courses. I will have all the links to these. Um, but I think that sometimes, you know, we we offer as parenting, I don't know, experts, coaches, uh, helpers, <laughs> whatever you want to call us. Uh, I think sometimes we offer advice and it doesn't apply to everything. Like I'm thinking about bedtime or like a child being rude to you or just situations when you're like, okay, I was told that during a tantrum, I should stay calm. And that's great. I got that down packed. But now my child just yelled at me or said something rude to me or I don't know, hit me and they've never done that before. They're an older child. How do I address that? How do I discipline that? If the word is discipline and we'll learn that from Brianna, but how do I address this really difficult situation that I wasn't ready for? That's why I asked Brianna to come back and we are addressing 10 um, difficult behaviors that you might not know what to do in that situation. So that means you need to take out your Curious Neuron notebook and uh, you need to listen to the entire discussion because there are 10 really important uh, questions that have come up from you guys uh, on Instagram and on her Instagram as well. I took the top 10 ones that are situations we all encounter and we need to learn what to do in those moments. I don't want to talk any further because it's a longer interview. Before we begin, just want to give a quick description of Brianna and, and all this will be in the show notes as well. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist. She's an infant family, early childhood mental health specialist and a perinatal mental health specialist who's certified in this. She is the owner and voice behind Conscious Mommy, where she teaches parents to become the conscious parent they never had. Since 2011, Brianna has worked exclusively with families with very young children to navigate challenges related to child development, behavior, and emotional issues, as well as attachment problems and trauma. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I will see you on the other side. Hi, Brianna. Hi, Cindy. I'm so glad to be back. Yes, exactly. I was just going to say, like, I get to say welcome back to the Curious Neuron podcast for the first time. I'm, uh, I just love speaking with you. We've done it on Instagram and now second time on the podcast. And we always have a lovely conversation. I'm excited to have another one now. Thank you. I'm very excited. (laughs) So today's a different take. This is also a different kind of episode. Um, I'm not focusing on a specific topic with you. I want to cover questions that parents ask me and questions that you have covered on your um, Instagram uh, feed in terms of with reels, um, because they're questions that focus on more difficult behaviors. Like sometimes, you know, we talk about tantrums and we have a general blueprint of how to approach this, but these are more challenging behaviors that we might as parents say, I don't think everything else is working or how do I approach this one? So let's cover some topics together um, and 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 I'm excited to see what your your answers are to this and I know that they will be helpful for all parents. Um, the first one being a child is disrespectful and this has happened to me you know with my three kids too it once it just comes out of nowhere sometimes and you don't know what to say. What do you do in that moment when your child disrespected you and and maybe that's out of character or maybe you notice that it's reoccurring. How do you address that? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think it's really important that we understand what our own personal relationship with disrespect is. Mm. So 
it's the reason why we might feel disrespected by a child is because we have this inflated sense of superiority and this inflated sense of authority over our children. And as a result, because of my position of power over you, I am thus earned respect. I instead invite parents to recognize, whoa, I have I have an issue and some deep need to feel respected by my child, and that's my issue. My job as the parent is, of course, to set boundaries. I will have to set some boundaries with my child. But before we go into the correction, don't you speak to me like that, or I don't like being spoken to like that. Mm -hmm. Can I actually connect with what might be going on with my child? Because a lot of the times, the child isn't actively disrespecting you because it's about you. It's that the child is emotionally immature and is reacting to something within them. And it is coming across in a way that doesn't feel good for you. As the parent, we have to be the emotionally mature one in the relationship with our child. So when my child says something that is disrespectful to me in any way, I'm going to first say, Whoa, what's going on here? I can see something is happening within you. If my, you know, usually we'll start to see like disrespectful behavior and like talking back and kind of acting a little like they have an attitude like mm -hmm. four and five years old and up. And it looks different at each age and stage, but that's in general what I would see. And what do I expect from children this age? Well, I expect that they, um, don't have really great introspection skills. They're not really reflective. They're not super aware of what's driving their behavior. All I know is that they have an impulsive need to get it out. Mm -hmm. So I keep that awareness on, oh, my child is showing me something important is happening inside of them. I want to connect with that first. What's going on here? Help me understand. Can you tell me another way what's going on? Did something happen at school? Maybe I get a little investigative, like a little detective of some sort. Once I've actually figured out what the problem is, then I circle back. I want you to know I did not like the way that you spoke to me. That was really not okay with me. I, I think a, a better way for both of us would be for you to say, mom, I'm having a problem and I need some help. Mm -hmm. So then we actually go back and teach. So we, we, connect, we offer the boundary, and then we teach the child exactly what it is that we want them to be doing with us. I love that you've approached it this way, because I think a parent who has a child who disrespects them, even if it's just saying no to something they ask them, or like you said, talking back, mm -hmm. I think sometimes our immediate response to that is discipline. Like you're in trouble. There's a consequence. You don't speak to me that way. But we don't realize that when we start questioning and start understanding the underlying reason why the parent, the child did that, and they might not have the tools to, you know, to, to bring it up the way that you did. Maybe they don't know you have to say it that way. I love that you've said that because there's, it's not just about the discipline at that point. There's a lot more to it. Yeah. I mean, mm. discipline has gotten so like, I, I don't even know the word I want to say, mm. but it's just become mm. like this really icky, um, mm. really icky feeling and icky conversation because yeah. discipline in a traditional model is about a parent having control and a child being compliant and obedient. Yeah. And so like, well, my child keeps telling me no. And I'm yeah. like, well, what is the problem? Why do we have a problem with our child saying no? Do you want your child to be able to say no to drugs when they're a teenager? Do you want them to feel comfortable saying, no, I'm not ready to have sex yet? Do you mm -hmm. want them to be comfortable to say no to things that really matter? Do you want them to say no to a boss who is exploiting them and making them work 60 hours a week at a, you know, barely minimum wage and not paying them for it? Is that, do you mm -hmm. want them to be able to say no to that? Because if you do, well, then we also have to create a space where a child learns how to say no with a parent and that their parent knows how to work with them in whatever that situation may be. Mm. Now, of course, there are situations and scenarios where like we can't really honor the child's no, right? I don't want to wear my seatbelt. I understand. And I can't move the car until you buckle up, right? I don't want to brush my teeth. I understand. And we got to keep your teeth healthy. Otherwise, you know, might have to get dentures and that wouldn't be very good. So we do need to brush your teeth. <laughs> so there's certainly areas in our children's lives where a hundred percent, like their no, it's just, it's not a negotiable, but the vast majority of things with a child, when they say no, that's really 
their boundary. They are the ones really asserting, no, this doesn't work for me. So I look at a child's now and I think, oh, so this doesn't work for you. Tell me what does. Right. So my child says, no, I don't want to wear that shirt. Oh, you don't like that shirt. Tell me what you don't like about it. And my son will articulate. I don't like the way it fits on my body. I don't like the way the tag feels in the back. Oh, I understand. Is there a better shirt that you might choose? Maybe it's a 90 degree day and maybe he'll choose a sweatshirt. And I'll say, you know, let's go. Let's go outside. Let's feel that. Let's feel how hot it is and see if a sweatshirt makes sense. Now, parents think I don't have time for that. This is crazy talk. What are you talking? This is the morning. I don't have time for that. And I want parents to understand that you're you're gonna have to make the time. You're either gonna fight and power struggle, or (laughs) you're going to make the time to teach your child. Mm -hmm. And I find that when we just simply allow the time to teach, not only do we get over these humps so much quicker and so much easier without a power struggle, but the child also learns for the next time to be able to advocate, no, mom, that shirt doesn't work for me. I've already checked the weather. I can see that it's feeling Mm -hmm. pretty warm. I think I'm going to wear this one instead. Wow. Awesome. Mm -hmm. But I've taught my child. I actively taught and nurtured what I can see they're still needing some support on, as opposed to just seeing their no as an act of defiance or they're so willful and all they do is push back against me. All of that is about my ego. And this is why I love conscious parenting, Cindy, because it invites us to look at our own ego and our own needs. So, you know, if you grew up not being able to say no, to a parent or to an an adult figure who had some kind of authority over you, you may have a real complex and real unresolved wounds around your own child saying no to you. So that's your work as the parent. It's not our children's job to do our work. It's our job to do our work. Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. love this. You know, it's interesting that we started off talking about like a child disrespecting us and then we went to a no because for some of us, that might be disrespectful and that might be something that triggers us. Mm-hmm. Now, with regards to the no, I, I just want to bring this up because I don't want parents to think that what you're saying is to just allow them to say no and that there's no boundary set around it. Like what you have explained is that we have to kind of be curious about it, but then also show them like, you know, if it's too hot outside or too cold, then you can't just wear anything that you want, but you're helping them make that decision. So we're not putting, we're not pushing down the boundaries. We're not being permissive and allowing them to do anything just to get past that moment and not make it a difficult moment. Oh, absolutely. That's a really good point. Um, And I think a lot of folks do conflate permissive parenting and gentle parenting. Mm -hmm. And they're really um, quite different because gentle parenting does have the strong boundary and the teaching component. Whereas in permissive parenting, it usually lacks the boundaries and thus it lacks the real teaching of the child, whatever I understand is happening within them. I, I really see that as a primary job for parents is to recognize what's going on on the inside for the child and then teach them about it and teach them how to navigate it. It's not as, I think it's not as intimidating and it's not as scary as it sounds, but I will say if we did not have adults who could mirror and understand what was going on within us, it really might feel like foreign territory to be able to try to understand what is happening within our kids. So, you know, it's good to listen to conversations like this. It's also good to do some personal work so that you can resolve those un- those wounds of not feeling heard and not feeling understood, maybe not feeling appreciated or seen so that we don't have to expect the child to meet those needs for us. Mm. One of the questions I had for you, um, I have a feeling we'll link back to this personal work and we can elaborate on it. Whining, you know, and, and you've covered this as well. Whining and, and other things could be very triggering to us as parents. And I'm assuming this goes back to the work. So how do we start the work if there's something that our child is doing that is extremely triggering to us? How do we know why it's triggering and, and where to begin? Absolutely. Excellent question. So in the, like in Whining and really any kind of behavior that annoys you, that is perfectly developmentally appropriate and relatively, I would say, safe, right? Like whining does not hurt me. So if I'm having a triggered reaction, my first question is, what is this about for me? Why is this so difficult for me in this moment? 
it's, we're not reflecting if we're like, because my kid is so annoying, because they won't stop whining. That's not self-reflection. That's, that's deflection. That's me putting it back onto the child and making the child the problem. Instead, I really want to invite parents to think, gosh, what is this about for me? Well, I just, maybe I'm having a, a feeling or like a memory of what it was like to like, also kind of have, like, I was an anxious kid, maybe, and I had some feelings as a kid, and, and I didn't have a parent who really understood it. They just, like, they just shut me down all the time, or they just sent me to my room. I I wasn't allowed to have any kind of feeling in the presence of a safe, supportive, caring adult. I had to go to my room and be by myself, and so right now I'm triggered because I actually want to escape this, or I want to send my child away because there's something that feels inherently bad or wrong here about me and my child. That is self-reflection work. So that is me opening up and understanding how my past might be influencing me here in this present moment. And then we have to take an action step. And this action step is not to repeat the past. We don't want to be reenacting, especially the maladaptive or dysfunctional ways that we learn to cope with perfectly normal, healthy human experiences. We want to find a more adaptive way. So then I pause and I'm aware, okay, I understand that this is hard for me. I would prefer to escape this moment and I'm built for this. I am built for struggle. I can be here even if I don't like it. I can be here. And now I'm going to be curious, what is going on inside my child's mind right now? What is my child too immature to actually tell me? And so it's coming out in this whininess. Are they telling me that they need a new a new space? Do they need some water? Do they need to get outside? Do they need to listen to some music? Do they need to be held? Do they want to be rocked? What is it that my child might be might be telling me? And then just just throw it, just throw it out there. Just do something. And if you get it wrong, I promise you your child will let you know. And when you get it right, you'll feel that. Mm. You'll feel and you'll drop into the present moment. You'll feel grounded and you and your child will regulate together. And then you'll keep moving on in your day. And as the parent, I think you will feel so successful and so effective because you really allowed yourself to kind of have this beautiful journey with your kid in this moment and not make your past your child's problem. Mm. And I think from my own journey, I learned what my needs were by doing that work. I had no idea that I had these sensory sensitivities myself. And I had noticed that by the time I had my third child, there was a lot of noise in the home. So by four or five o'clock in the afternoon, I was triggered by anything and I didn't understand it. And it was only once I started kind of journaling about it, just writing down what was happening, when it was happening, how I felt. Not a big job of like, just like little point form notes that I made the link to to the noise and the touch and the, to me, that was overstimulating and my brain couldn't handle it by that time because I had the noise and the touch all day with three kids nursing and who's in my arms and changing the diapers. It was just too much. So I think when we start doing the work, like you mentioned, I think it helps us just understand ourselves and the, the needs that we also have as parents, because we can't let those needs continue to be unmet because um, it changes how we respond to our kids. This is so beautiful. And like, you're really talking too about like even the step before what I described. So the step before is actually doing that self-reflection work outside of the moment. So writing it down, recognizing what, what is happening for me? Why did I have such a strong reaction? Oh, I'm triggered by, by all the noise and feeling touched out. This is a lovely reflection. And then the next stage is to recognize that trigger in the present moment with the child <laughs> instead of reacting to the trigger. Now mm -hmm. I'm reflecting on the trigger and then I can shift how I react and really respond to my kid in the moment. It's so valuable. Writing, I think, is journaling is such a beautiful way to just really get into your heart and your soul and your psyche and really understand why you are the way you are. Because mm. mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong with the way we are, you know? We have, we, we're trying to just not improve ourselves, but I, I guess get to the core of who we are. And that's how we, we get to that. You know, um, I, I'm curious in terms of older kids, uh, I, I often talk about five and under, but 
my mother-in-law were having this conversation and she was saying that a lot of kids are 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 rude to her as an educator in elementary school and she doesn't we don't and there might be parents who are experiencing this with their own child as well or educators listening where you don't know how to approach that again and maybe it's not your own child and maybe you just don't know how to approach the rudeness would you do it the same way as the child being disrespectful and they're young and perhaps you're not at that developmental stage yet to understand what they said but what happens when they're old enough to know that you can't speak to somebody that way, but they don't have any other way of doing it? How do we approach that? So there might be some social and emotional delays in a child if they have been taught and modeled mm-hmm. and they have parents who communicate in respectful ways, parents who foster respectful communication and collaborative dialogue. I don't usually find those children as they get older to have a consistent pattern of rudeness. Mm-hmm. Now, like everybody has their moments, right? Sometimes you are just going to be sassy and you're just going to have an <laughs> attitude and you are not going to you know, talk to the person in the way that they that you should speak to them okay so we give people passes we're not expecting our children to be these perfect perfect beings okay we're going to give them a pass but when it's a consistent thing a child is consistently rude i always wonder well what's going on at home do are there any environmental stressors that could potentially be stressing this kid out and they can only do their acting out at school because they can't do it at home so i really want to know what is going on in the family system um, if there's nothing going going on and you know in general you feel like the parents are doing this work that we're talking about well then it's a, I would assume without a di- you know because you can't diagnose anything but I would assume there's some social and emotional delay this child is not aware of their impact mm-hmm. so teaching children how to become more aware of their impact which has to do with holding children accountable for their impact holding children accountable for how they behaved. As an educator, if I were a teacher, um, I would probably pull that child aside. I would not do an in front of the class discipline because that would only provoke shame and humiliation and actually encourage the children to behave um, in these kinds of ways more. I will pull the child aside and I would say, hey, I noticed that we were having a tough time in our science lesson. And uh, the way you were speaking to me was making me feel like something's going on with you. Would you care to share what's happening inside for you? And then after I hear a little bit, I would then set the boundary. It's really not okay for you to speak like that in class. Um, not only is it disrespectful for me to hear that as your teacher, but it's also disrespectful to your peers. And I know that that you really look up to your peers and your peers really look up to you. So we're all learning how to use our words to the best of our abilities and to really just show a lot of love and a lot of kindness to each other. So I'm going to ask you to keep practicing that, okay? That's probably what I would say to to a child in in an educational setting. And if it becomes a problem, you hold a parent meeting and you you get to the core of it. Again, we must get to the core of these issues. Children are not just acting out to act out as we've been told, you know, throughout as practically most of my career. I feel like that's what I learned until I really dove into infant mental health. And I was like, oh, that is not the case. They're not just acting out to act out. It's always an expression of something underneath that's very important to them. I love that you brought this conscious parenting into the classroom, showing that a teacher or an educator can apply this as well. And regardless of the amount of students being there, right? I'm I'm bringing that up because I just actually got a DM two days ago from a parent who had a child in, in kindergarten and they had a thinking chair and she was questioning whether or not that was a good way to discipline and and show kids in kindergarten what you can or cannot do when her child was put on this chair three days into this new school year and was sad about it. Um, they couldn't play games and so on. How do we take this conscious parenting um, and 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 apply that when you have a larger group of students? Because this argument, the teacher's argument when the parent brought it up is, I have 30 kids, you know, yeah. like I don't have time to sit there and chat with them. So I just have them sit on the thinking chair. It wasn't called a naughty chair or anything, but it was a thinking chair. Is this right? Is this still shaming the child? How should we be approaching this? I mean, this is a behavior management tool. Um, yes, it is still shaming the child. Um, it's it's a double punishment because you have to sit in a chair and think about what you did, but without borrowing the regulated executive 
functioning of an attuned adult who is helping you understand what mm. the problem is. And then you're also um, not being allowed to engage in developmentally appropriate activities with peers, which at the age of five is certainly a big punishment for children. So um, from a developmental lens, it's it's very ineffective. But from a behavior management and classroom perspective, it can be an effective tool. I'm not saying I agree with it, but in terms of behavior management, yeah. so we're not talking about the child's emotional needs, we're talking about the, the behavior needs of a classroom. Um, it is an effective tool, but you know, it would be a much more effective tool for the child's whole development, more teacher support. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah, more, ta- more tax dollars or yeah. more funding yes. to have more adults in the room so that you can stop and teach. Why is one teacher responsible for 30 for 30 students or two, one teacher and a, you know, an aide who yeah. you know, probably is shadowing the one or two children in the class who really need the help exactly. can't really be available for all the other kids. This is this is unacceptable. And we need to have more support in the classroom, especially for the younger children, especially the, for, for current kids, you know, given what we went through the last two years and us not having access to social experiences and children really missing out, there's, there's an, there is an inevitable social and emotional gap for our children. And I think it's really um, vital that we amp up the adult um, attention in the classroom to be able to support our kids in all of their learning and their different learning styles. Mm, I agree with you. I I, I really do think we need to change that um, for the learning aspect, for the social emotional aspect, because, you know, this will help kids, like you said, have that person to speak with and and to approach these behaviors from your pers- like the way that you're explaining it. I think we do need that. Um, it's so important. You know, I I think of also the individuality of the kids and their own needs when it comes to emotional needs or social needs. And this could be within our home too. And if we have more than one child, we might notice that one is a little bit more sensitive. And even if we're trying to approach um, you know, showing them how to behave and how to act in the home or with people, they might get they might get upset right away and start crying when we get upset about something or tell them that's not the way to do it or you shouldn't have said that. Um, mm-hmm. And I've experienced it with my kids too. Sometimes it's just about raising your voice a little bit. And it's like now you realize only once they they start crying that they didn't like that. How do we approach a, a highly sensitive child when it comes to doing it this way if they've done something that we need to to speak to them about? What is so important when it comes to highly sensitive kids, parents need to understand they require a, a they require a very attuned parent who is open to moving slowly with these children. So what I often find is the highly sensitive child usually starts to kind of pull back, appear, quote, shy, or, you know, doesn't really use their voice, isn't really assertive, and then like explodes and has big reactions. And so parents, um, you know, put a lot of pressure and pressure and pressure to try to get this child to be less sensitive. And then when the child reacts, the parent that's not the way to do it. And it really creates this mismatch in um, temperament styles and really in the like kind of underlying child-parent connection that we really want to be nurturing, especially with highly sensitive kids. They're more prone to anxiety. These children are more prone to like deep feelings of shame and guilt and not enoughness. Um, sensory sensitivities, as you discussed, um, is a is a you, strong feature in highly sensitive kids we have to be attuned to what is going on in their body and then we have to teach them so for example a child who might be like a little bit shyer and like afraid to kind of say whatever it is that they need and then freaks out because they didn't get their their need met I might notice that to the child hey you are you're freaking out something feels bad can you show me where in your body it feels bad? It's your tummy. Oh, wow. If your tummy could talk right now, what would it say? And so, you know, sometimes if they're really young, they'll act it out and they'll show us what their tummy is saying. And if they're older, they might be able to articulate with words. Then I can teach my child how to cope, 
highly sensitive children need tools to better cope with it. We're not going to take away the high sensitivity. And honestly, their high sensitivity is beautiful. These children often grow into becoming very empathic adults, adults who can feel mm. the needs of others who can really thoughtfully engage with others. And these are really, we need them just as much as we need our, you know, boisterous, loud, <laughs> extroverted people. We need our sensitive children as well. Um, we, we don't want to beat it out of them or make them feel like they're wrong for it. There's nothing wrong with being sensitive. It's a beautiful way to be in the world. But as parents, it does usually mean a, mean a temperamental shift, especially if you yourself have a are more extroverted or are more intense, are um, just kind of in general less flexible, you will have to make some important shifts to meet your child where they're at. I love that you're also saying not to squash it, right? We don't want that. And and it's so important for us to appreciate our children for who they are and, and how, you know, the temperament and, and everything with it. And it could be hard sometimes as a parent, um, but I, I love that we're focusing on making sure that they stay like that, but here's how we can help them. I, I think of um, this type of parenting, the, the type of parenting that is, is covered in research, you know, and balancing that sensitivity and warmth with the boundaries. But then for some reason within my own home and parents, many parents that I've spoken with, all that goes out the window when it's bedtime. Oh yeah. <laughs> as much as we try our best to follow this kind of parenting throughout the day. You know, for some parents, it's hard around dinner time, if there's homework especially. But some of us, it's bedtime. I become my worst self. <laughs> and, and, and it's hard to, you know, if you're dealing with more than one child and one's afraid of the dark and one doesn't want to be alone and one wants to be rocked, you don't know what to do as a parent. How do you approach bedtime in a conscious way and in a way that doesn't drive you nuts <laughs> every single night? Yes. So first and foremost, drop your expectations. Mm, That's yes. probably the most important thing. <laughs> Number two, I want you to know what you're going to be doing after bedtime. What do you have available that's going to be caring and nurturing for you? Sometimes just knowing, oh, this thing that I'm so excited for is waiting for me can help us get through with a smile. Um, or even just with a little bit more regulation. Even if you're not smiling, you don't have to smile <laughs> all the time. Um, and then I would say, you know, it's okay if there's competing needs, um, especially when you have multiple kids. I, I usually make the recommendation of how can we make our bedtime routine a family routine as opposed to each child having their own individual routine. Um, so for example, I have two kids. I have a four-year-old and a 22-month-old. And this is the rhythm that we have found. And every family is going to find their own rhythm. Um, we go to the same bathroom together where I change the littlest one diaper. The other one takes his potty break before bed. And then one plays while I brush one kid's teeth. They just play with I don't know, a random box that's in the bathroom. It's not anything special. And then I brush the other child's teeth. And then we go into their bed together. They actually sleep in the same room. And in fact, they sleep in the same bed, even though they do have different beds, but these two kids would prefer to sleep together. And a lot of parents ask me, well, how do you make how do you make sure that they don't keep each other up at night? And they they don't. And I and I honestly think it it's because of the the family cohesive kind of togetherness that we've created as a routine. It took some time, probably about a week to get this flow, but now it's a pretty good flow. Each child chooses one or two books. We sit, sit down, I get a flashlight. So it feels like we're like camping. We read the books together and then we lay down. I sing them some songs. We listen to some music. I cuddle both of them and just let them get nice and calm and give them big kisses. And then I leave and I let them know they need to keep their bodies in bed and they just have to close their eyes. It's time for stillness. And that's what I tell them before we go. And I leave and they fall asleep. But the emphasis on nurturing activities, allowing ourselves to be slow, bedtime, not a, not a lot needs to be happening. You know, if you can get bath done right after school, that is a great time to do bath as opposed to before, you know, right after dinner. It's too chaotic. So change your routine if you have to make it simpler so you can stay more regulated 
And you can also support your children in feeling more regulated. How can you support your child if they are always getting out of bed or they're, they don't want you to leave the room and then you have another child? What can you do for that specific child and their needs if you're kind of tearing yourself apart to help all these children and that one needs, you know, more, has more needs, that one child has more needs? That's a great question. So we always feed the hungriest first. So if one child really does have some more needs, then I'm going to go into that child and I'm going to, I probably would stroke their hair and stroke their back and I let them know, honey, you don't even have to fall asleep, but I do need you to close your eyes and I do need you to keep your body still. You can stay awake all night if you want, but you do need to keep your eyes closed. And in about two minutes, they're asleep. (laughs) That's a good one. (laughs) I'm going to try that. (laughs) If one keeps getting out of their room, depending on their age, I might do an okay to wait clock and let them know you can leave the room when it's green. Um, But if it's red, honey, you need to stay in bed. And then I just keep redirecting. Um, If it's getting really bad, you know, maybe I'll put uh, like a doorknob thing so they can't physically manipulate the door. Um, I don't necessarily recommend locking a child in their room because that isn't always the safest thing. But if you have a roamer, if you have a kid who goes and roams the house in the middle of the night and knows how to unlock the front door, you know, latch that door. And then if you have to lock the room and see the, see the whole room as the child's crib, I wouldn't blame you. You know, every child is different. I don't think we can have like blanket rules, you know, it just doesn't fit. Every child is going to need their own approach. Um, so yeah. And also I think for parents too, like us being sensitive to the fact that nighttime is hard. It's hard to be away from your mom and your dad, and it's hard to be away from them for 11 hours. It's hard. It's a lot on the child's body to have that long of a separation. And, you know, if you know something that also really helps is carving out like the first three minutes of seeing your child to just connect mm, to have yes. a great big hug yes. or my like, gosh, like after you go to the potty, like let's sit down and read a book together. So I find that when there is this built-in connection time for even literally three or five minutes mm-hmm. with the children first thing in the morning, it really also helps bedtime feel better. Remember how I said, when you have something to look forward to after bedtime routine is over, you can get through it a little easier. This is no different for the child. When they have something to look forward to in the morning, they can get through the bedtime a little bit easier too. Mm, That's such good advice. I can't wait to try that. And it's true. You know what? Those three moments, those moments of connecting, I think even applies for, let's say during the day, if your child's home and you have a meeting and you're working from home, taking those three to five minutes to connect with them before you have your meeting usually reduces the amount of like them having to come to see you after because you've done whatever you need to do. They feel connected to you and they're able to disconnect for a few moments now um, because they just feel closer to you. I think that makes, it makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Mm. And when you get that urge to yell and to get angry and to get upset, oh my God, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, I've done it, you have done it. Reel it back in. Oh, I don't like the way I just acted. I was so frustrated and I let my frustration out by yelling. And usually my son will say, yeah, mom, yelling is not an okay way. You need to find another way, mommy. (laughs) And I'll say, oh, yes, you're right. Okay, let me think. And then I'll put it back on him. Do you think you can help me? Can you help me think of like a different way? He goes, I'll say, well, I think you can say I'm feeling angry and I'm feeling frustrated. And I really need you guys to stop, look and listen. I said, okay. That's what I'll say. And so I give my child actually that opportunity to teach me, which children love to do. And this helps to kind of repair the moment, allow for more bonding and really allow us to move. No Mm. guilt, no guilt. You just repair and move on. We have to do that. Otherwise you're going to lose your mind. (laughs) Yes. You know, the, 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 the emotions part and sharing that with your child, I, I have a story around that because last week I gave a, t- a workshop in a school about emotion regulation skills. And there's a father that asked me a question that marked me. He said, you know, uh, he said, Cindy, you were talking about like um, working with a child and helping them understand where they're struggling with emotions, what their strengths are, what they need to work on in terms of regulating different emotions. He's like, can I do the same thing with my own emotions, but in front of my child? 
And I said, of course, that would be great for them to say, to see you say, you know, when I get really angry, I tend to yell and I need to work on that. It would be fantastic for them to know that. And he said, but aren't I the authoritative figure in the home? Why would I want to show my child that I have these weaknesses and that I need to work on something when I'm supposed to be the one that has it all right? And I said, you know what? It, it makes you human. This makes you human. And they need to see that. And I'll never forget the face, his face right after that. It was kind of like a relaxing into his hand and like, huh, I never thought about that. Like we have this need or why, I don't know what it is, but to, to that, that, that it's not about controlling your child or we can have an authoritative figure when we are balancing that warmth and sensitivity, which by the way, parents wanted me to tell them, what does it mean to be sensitive to our child's needs and emotions, right? They didn't know what that looked like. And I think we really need to continue these conversations because I'm sure there are more dads out like, like him and more moms too, saying like, I can't show a weakness. Emotions are not a weakness. Um, and I, I wish every parent knew that. This is such I love a, that you're doing it. I love this beautiful story. Mm. The fact that like uh, the sense of being an authority means I always look like I've got it together and right? I don't look like I have any kind of problems or any mm. kind of weaknesses. Mm -hmm. I just think it's so, so valuable to reflect on. It reminds me of what D.W. Winnicott says. He says that our children need us to be imperfect so they can learn how to be in an imperfect world. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Children will not be able to thrive in the, the, the inevitable imperfections of the world that will surround them if they grow up in this experience of my parents never made a mistake. My parents never felt anything other than, you know, anger maybe toward me or proudness of me and pretty much that's it. Yeah. My parents really have to show me how to deal and how to cope with being human. That's what we're doing. We are having a human experience. I think we've kind of like, that's the simplest way to say right. what, what, why we're even here on this yes. earth. <laughs> Truly to have a exactly. human experience and part mm -hmm. of being human is evolving. You had said, you know, you, you had said, it's not like we're trying to make ourselves better. And I wanted to interject. It's about us evolving. It's about us evolving and learning and growing from all of the struggles and encounters and challenges and victories and achievements that we will all have in our lifetime. And our children get to witness us through that as, as well as us witnessing our kids through that as well. Mm. I, I, I'm, I love this conversation. I always enjoy speaking with you. Um, let's tackle a few little topics that perhaps it comes back to the what we've been speaking about before. I don't know if there'll be something a little different, but a child who hits you, I'm assuming we would approach it very similarly to what you said in terms of mm -hmm. a child being disrespectful. Yeah. Or would it be yeah. different? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, sometimes when it comes to like the physical aggression, um, it really just depends on the child. Again, if it's a super sensitive child, I'd probably start with connection and then let the child know I can't let you hit. If it's an impulsive kid and they're just kind of hitting either out of anger or just because they didn't realize that you were there and they're just reacting to something, then I'm probably going to set the boundary first. I can't let you hit. Tell me what's happening in your body. Or I can't let you hit, I see you want X, Y, Z, or I see you need, or I can tell you're angry, especially if a child is very young and can't answer a question like, oh, this is what I need. So I encourage parents to absolutely set clear boundaries around hitting, pushing, kicking, shoving, biting. And we can do that without shaming. We don't have to say no hitting. Hitting is bad. What is wrong with you? Why would you do that to me? Do you see my leg? Look, my leg hurts now. Like, your parent, your leg does not hurt, mom. <laughs> your child is yeah. three. Okay, yeah. if your leg hurts, we got to get you to the gym. We got to get you more squats. <laughs> we got to got to build some muscles in your legs, girl. Because you're gonna get hit. You're 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 gonna get bruised up by by parenting. So mm. you know. <laughs> we have to be honest. We don't, that's not the way to teach. That's not an effective boundary. You hurt me is not an effective boundary. That's actually how children talk to each other. Mm. If you really listen to children on the playground, you're being a bad boy. You, I'm not going to play with you. Well, you hurt me. That's why I'm not going to play with you. And so often 
I get that kind of energy when I watch children and parents have a conflict. And that's why I always remind parents, you are the emotionally mature one. Let's drop in. Let's get grounded. Let's set boundaries without any kind of shame. And let's teach our child a better way to express whatever it is that they might be needing in that moment. And if you don't know, that's okay. If you don't know what they need, be with the unknown. You can even say that. I can't let you hit. I don't know what you need. Mm. You need something. I don't know what it is. That is okay to say that. At least your child will know, oh, my parent at least sees me. Because at the end of the day, isn't that what we all want anyway? Is it yes. just between adults or children? Oh, yeah. And and you've been saying the word notice a lot. And I think that comes back to what you're saying now. If you don't know it, you've noticed it. And then maybe coming back to taking notes about your child and just understanding when are they doing it? Who's around them? Is it after something, before something uh, in terms of, you know, maybe before school or daycare or going to somebody's house? Um, by just writing point form notes, you don't have to write a lot, but you start understanding which aspect of their environment is contributing to that behavior and most probably an emotion. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Yeah. What about a child who's lying? Um, at what age is that developmentally appropriate? And how do we approach that? Um, again, without shaming your child, but mm -hmm. we don't want them to to continue that, obviously. Yeah. Well, first of all, if you like set a kid up to lie to you, that mm. I, I don't want parents to be setting a child mm. up to lie to them. Uh, we, we really want to be creating an environment where, you know, I'm not setting my kids up for failure. So that's mm -hmm. the first thing. Secondly, you should expect lying to happen anywhere from like four years old and up. This is because the child is learning about their reality. Um, and they're learning that, you know, sometimes things are true and sometimes things aren't true. But if I say the thing that's art, that is not true, does it make it come true? So they're, they're kind of working through this wishful thinking that children have. Um, and then sometimes children lie, uh, especially as they get older, because they might fear getting punished. Mm -hmm. They might fear, you know, disappointment. They don't want to hear that they've done something bad and wrong. And so they'll lie as a way to, like, preserve their own um, sense of, like, sense of self and their own self-esteem. So they might lie for that reason. I think it's really important that if we catch our child in a lie, that we let them know, oh, hey, you know, I'm noticing that I, I asked you this and you said this, and I actually know that that, that did not happen. And I want to understand what is driving this for you. What do you think is the reason why you might not be telling me the truth? Again, we go back to curiosity. Explore with the child. When we set this environment up at a very young age and throughout at least the first 10 to 15 years, that when you're having a problem, you can come and talk to me about it. You will have teens who are 16 and really venturing out into the world and young adults who want to talk to you because they know you're not going to shame me or judge me. You're going to have compassion and understanding and you're going to guide me and support me. You might call me out if I need a call out because sometimes we need a good call out, but you're going to do it from a place of total love and total compassion. Because you see the whole person. I think a lot of the times like, we forget to see the whole child in front of us. I'm just reacting to the bad behavior. But I'm forgetting that, oh, this might be a child who didn't even realize that they were lying. Or who is experimenting. Who saw a kid do it at school and now is experimenting. Or maybe my child really fears that I might be disappointed in them. So what is that about? Let me just tell you right now, you could, you could never disappoint me. I like, it's not about me. You might disappoint yourself, but you're not going to disappoint me because I'm always going to be here for you to support you. And now I'm going to put the boundary. I really do need you to be honest with me. And then let's try it again. I'm going to ask the question and I want you to be honest with me. And then we just try it again. I see every um, situation that you've described as a moment to build that relationship with our child and that connectedness with them because even in the moments where we think they're just like not listening or didn't follow or whatever it is, that moment that could have been a negative thing if we would have approached it a certain way, when we approach it the way that you're explaining today, we are building that relationship, that that respect with our child. And, you know, again, it's not, you know, it's 
having the respect from our child doesn't mean that they have to fear us, which is what how I was raised. You know, it's like you just I'm not your friend. I'm your parent. And this is the way it is. And there's no say you have no say. It's not about that. You've expressed the boundary in every situation that you've described. But truly that respect and and and, and warmth around the situation and, and seeing that child is what will make such a difference for our children um, and our relationship with them. Mm, amen to that. Mm. Um, how about certain um, things that are not like a negative thing, but a positive thing that they're not doing enough of, right? Like I think of parents who express the, the fact that their child isn't grateful when they receive a gift from a family member or doesn't appreciate what they have in their home. They're, they're being um, disrespectful towards inside the house or toys or whatever it might be. How do we um, instill that in our children or approach those situations where we just feel they're not appreciating something? Yeah. So uh, first of all, appreciate demanding appreciation for anything is about the person demanding the appreciation, not the <laughs> not the child. Um, so we have expectations that we should be appreciated and we the children should be grateful for us. Um, and for many of us, it's it's literally because that was projected upon us. I give mm -hmm. you that house. I feed you. I put yes. clothes on your back and you treat me like this. You know, <laughs> I heard that exact sentence growing up. <laughs> exactly. You yeah. didn't. You didn't. Call me. I want to pick your brain. Your brain is probably amazing. Yes. Um, but most of us heard that growing up. And so we we think that this is what um, effective and good parenting is about. It's about demanding this kind this kind of appreciation. But really what it's about is us not actually feeling our own sense of appreciation and our own sense of gratitude in childhood. And so now we're trying to get that need met from our, from our children. So I always invite parents who are needing gratitude, who needing their kids to be grateful for them or who are needing appreciation to actually bring that back. You be grateful for yourself every day, create a self, gratitude practice you appreciate yourself like literally pat on the back oh you made a great dinner i am so grateful that you made this delicious dinner <laughs> this is so fabulous the kids hate it i don't care i love it it is delicious i'm gonna put theirs in the trash here you go but i'm gonna eat mine because mine is delicious so you're not focusing so much on their experience and then number two how do we teach children gratitude and teach children appreciation certainly through our own modeling and then I do think it is important to to really instruct children to say thank you, to say hello, to say please, to say goodbye. These are social skills. Being able to say thank you for the gift is a social skill that children don't come out of the womb knowing, right? Like if a child says, oh, I don't really like the gift, I might pull the child aside and say, that's okay that you don't like the gift. We're still going to say thank you to your nona for giving you the gift. Mm -hmm. So you can say thank you in whatever way you'd like, but I do want you to please say thank you. Mm -hmm. And I will encourage and support my child in being able to follow through. That is how children learn how to express it. How does it get deep, deep, deep into their hearts? Time. Mm -hmm. It takes time. And it's not about us telling them to appreciate it every time that we notice they're not. It's really about the modeling. And in, in terms of appreciation, gratitude, it's as simple sometimes as just saying out loud, like, wow, it's a beautiful day and the sun is gorgeous and it's so hot and I, I'm appreciating this day and just saying it out loud or appreciating people. I, I think there was a study I had covered and there were like four steps to teaching your child gratitude. And the last step was was your actions. It's, you know, it's about what you, how you speak about something. Let's say your neighbor brings you some muffins, you know, like you close the door, you have them in your hands and you tell your child, well, I'm so grateful that they brought this to me. I really appreciate it. And then it's, it's showing them also the emotion around that. It made me feel so good that they did that. They knew that I was sick or, you know, something happened and I, I needed like some love and affection from them and they were really kind about it. And then there's the action, like what do you do to show appreciation to that person? Maybe a note, maybe ringing their doorbell and saying thank you, perhaps returning that basket with muffins, you know, a week later of your own, but just showing them the actions around that. Um, so it's not about just saying be grateful or appreciate the gift from no, 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 no. It's, right. it's really about... Um, and I love that we, it's no, 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 because it's like that for my on my side, too. Um, but, you know, it's really about um, how you do it. And it does take time. We have to be patient with it. But the more we do it, they will learn um, how to do that. Absolutely. 
For those of you counting, we are at the the 10th behavior. So basically, I covered with Brianna 10 different behaviors that I've been receiving questions around and that she's covered. Um, And all of these have never been covered here on the podcast. And if you didn't take out a notebook at the beginning of this episode, then just go back, listen to the episode again, because there was so much information in this episode. And I'm sad that this is the last question. Um, But now this is something that I have experienced with my three kids and we're still working on it. Again, I know it's being consistent, but a child who interrupts when you're speaking to another adult, it takes a lot of time. I have tried. Um, when my firstborn was younger, she would, she would place her hand. If I was on the phone, she would place her hand on my hand and I would just show her like, you know, one minute with my finger and she would wait. It's not working with my boys. <laughs> I've tried the same method. Um, what is your advice around that? Because it could be triggering. It could be very triggering for a parent, especially if you're on the phone or you're having a conversation and you have more than chi- one child around you who's just talking to you, not yep. thinking about the fact that you're speaking with somebody else. Again, it's a social skill mm. and and it's an impulse control social yes. skill. So Thank being you. able to mm-hmm. control your that impulse to speak immediately, as well as this cognitive skill of being able to hold your thought mm-hmm. and wait before you get it out. And so I usually teach parents to actually turn to children and say, hold your thought. I need you to be quiet and I'll turn my listening ears on in five seconds or 10 seconds. It just depends on on the child and their skill set. Let's say like an ADHD child, (laughs) I'm going to start like with five seconds because that's about the amount of time that that child can manage. If it's a child who I've been doing this with a lot, I might ask them to hold their thought for five minutes and then my ears will be ready for you. And then you always follow through. The follow through is so important. My ears are ready. Tell me, yeah. what, is, what is it that you wanted to say? Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of the times a child won't remember what they wanted to say, but really what were they actually looking for? Connection. So they're going to want to have a little bit of connection time with you. Don't make it about the thing that they were trying to tell you. Just make it about this new moment. You're basically creating time and space for your child to feel heard while also giving them some structure and some boundaries when you are preoccupied and you're not immediately available to the demands of the child. I would apply what you just said to when you're busy doing something as well, right? Because mm-hmm. I've, I've said that to my kids where I'm doing something and they they have a need. They want me to go do something for them or play with them. And I'm in the middle of preparing dinner and I just can't. And I said, I I would tell them, like, I I can't give you my attention right now or I can't listen to what you're telling me. I want to be able to focus on your story and hear your story. So just give me five minutes. So I I love that because we're showing them that we care. But right Mm -hmm. now is we can't. We just can't listen to them if we're in the middle of a conversation. Yeah, and it and it does backfire. My four yeah. does say, "Mommy, I need you to hold your thought because I'm oh. busy playing." Oh. And then he goes back to playing. <laughs> so then five or ten seconds later, we'll go by, and he'll turn to me and say, "I'm ready now, mommy. What was it you wanted?" <laughs> and that's when you tell yourself, "Well, I modeled. I modeled it very well." <laughs> Yes. He got it. He got the message. But I, I see this as such beautiful, like he's really learning how to set his own beautiful boundaries and, you know, learning how to navigate the world in a way that, you know, his work, his toys, his that's his work. This is his, It's important to him. Why should I just be allowed to barge in and have what I need to be said heard? And he can't barge in when I'm yeah. doing my work. He does have to wait. So I love that, that there's some kind of equality there. And I think it certainly helps bolster the child's sense of esteem and really does build that beautiful mutual respect just to circle back to the beginning of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Really does create that more collaborative environment that just feels so good for everybody. Mm. Ah, I'm sad that this conversation is at its end. I know what's happening right now for the parents that are listening. You're like, how do I get more of Brianna? (laughs) How do I get her into my home? I know you have courses and I know you have social media. Can you share all that with us so that and everything that she talks about will be in the show notes so that you can just click and access it. But I'd love to hear them from you. Um, How do we learn more from you? Yes. So I have my online workshops and classes. You can find at learning.consciousmommy.com. I have my Instagram and my TikTok. The handle is at Conscious Mommy. And then if you need some, you know, individualized support, you can learn more about that at ConsciousMommy.com. And your courses, just so that we have an idea of, of how you'd help a parent through your courses, what are we looking at? 
in terms of the I topics? have my, my eight-week group coaching course, Becoming the Conscious Parent You Never Had. This is that deep dive reflective work as well as being able to do it in the moment with the child and really shifting how you communicate and discipline and set boundaries with our children. That's kind of my foundational course. Um, and then I have my, my workshops, my Let Go series. Um, I have the Let Go of Your um, Inner Control Freak, Let Go of Your Triggers, Let Go of Your People Pleaser. And then in December, I'll have the Let Go of Your Past Hurts. And then in 2023, mm. all four of those will be bundled together as a, you know, kind of a, I would say like a deeper intro into the Conscious Mommy Framework. Mm, I love this. Thank you, Brianna, for chatting with me again. I, I know I'll have to have you back at some point. <laughs> we'll chat on Instagram. <laughs> I can't wait. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. Don't forget to leave a rating and review the podcast and send me an email at info at with your screenshot and I'll send you a free PDF. Thanks everyone. See you next time.